But we're in Genesis 10 this week, and, and I know that this is the text that you've been waiting on the edge of your seat for. Uh, just as we <clears throat> talked about last week, while we don't skip over hard texts, uh, difficult texts in Scripture, some people might argue that maybe we should skip over or at least skim through genealogical texts. What do you do in your personal Bible reading when you come across a list of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so? What do you do when you come across these long list of names in the Bible? There are 70 names in, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to read every single one of them. Uh, when you're doing your personal devotions, do you read every name? Have you ever had one of those days when you really feel like you need a word of God, right? You need a word of encouragement or hope or you're feeling discouraged and you really want God to speak to you. And in your daily Bible reading, you come across a list of names. I can remember times when I have been tempted to skim through uh, and and we'll go back through and, and try to read every name and, and check every little cross-reference and, and try to find the, the meaning of their name and, and try to milk the text for every ounce of inspiration that I can find. But I'll also confess that more times than not, I struggle to get through these genealogies. I, I don't memorize these, and I, I don't know if you memorize these for encouragement, um, that would be incredible, but, but when we get to these texts, uh, it can become difficult for us to understand the meaning of them. By the end of our time together today, though, um, what I want to help you answer is, what do we practically do with these sort of genealogical records in Scripture? A couple of notes before we, before we go through this. Uh, this chapter in Genesis 10 is often called the Table of Nations. And it is a, uh, a record of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and how they spread out over the world after the flood. Uh, we have listed here 70 different names, uh, nations that came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some of them are names, some of them are nations. Some of them are individuals and some of them are the name that their ancestors took when they moved to a particular area. Um, the ESV Study Bible says that this entire passage, all of chapter 10, sets out in front of us how the descendants of Noah's three sons populated different regions of the earth. Now, before you're tempted to doze off uh, as, we, as we get into this, let me just give you a couple of notes. Um, chronologically speaking, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 actually comes first. Uh, when we're getting to this place in, in time. Because you'll see three times uh, in verse 5, 20, and 31 that these are people who spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. That's repeated in verse 5. That's repeated again in verse 20. That's repeated again in verse 31. And then it's reiterated in verse 32 when according to their nations, they spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we know that that hasn't happened yet, because at this particular time, after the flood, all people spoke one language, and they were all together, and they were building these megacities that we'll get into. We also understand um, that this is a selective list. It's not a comprehensive list. Um, 
The number 70 has some significance, and it's a number of completion. I won't go into all the places in Scripture where 70 is used, but it's used over and over and over again. The number of Israelites that went into Egypt were 70. The number of elders that Moses was to call was 70. The number of disciples that Jesus sent out was 70. 70 is a significant biblical number. And so the idea that we have 70 nations right here um, might have something to do, and some commentaries will refer to Deuteronomy 32.8. You don't need to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 32.8, Moses is telling the Israelites about the division of people. And in that passage, he says, Remember the days of old, consider the days and the years of many generations, ask your father, he will show you, ask your elders, they will tell you. And then in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 32, remember when the Most High gave to all the nations their inheritance, and when he divided mankind, and he fixed the borders of all peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob his allotted inheritance. We had a sermon a few weeks ago about the sons of God from Genesis 6 and who they were, these created uh, beings that ruled under God. And so this hints that God divided out these nations according to the number of this significance of 70. We don't know that for sure, but that's what Genesis 32.8 hints at. And either way, 70 is a significant number of completion. What we have in this chapter is a genealogical, geographical passage that describes a process of hundreds of years of Seth, I mean, of Noah's family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, migrating to their particular regions. And we're going to get to the significance of that toward the end of our message today. The ancestor after whom the clan or tribe is named may not have lived in the region that later bears his name, but they come to know that because Moses is writing to the children of Israel after they've left Egypt. So this is a different group of people than what would have been living at the time when the nations were separated. So let's get into the text. In Genesis chapter 10, uh, verse 1, it reads, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And what you find here in this first verse is the uh, generations formula. And you'll remember the generations formula is also called the Toledot formula. Uh, And I have a slide here for you just because it's harder for me to describe it other than just to show you this picture. Uh, This is a table of the the different generations about how um, Genesis is divided. It may be hard to read there for you, but, but we see this exact same formula. These are the generations of used 10 times in the book of Genesis. In chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the earth. In chapter 5, verse 1, these are the generations. In 6, 9, here in 10, 1, in 11, 10, in 11, 27, you can see that all through here we have the generations of so-and-so, Adam, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem. Chapters 1 through 11 describe these five divisions within the book of Genesis in what's called primeval history uh, before and then after 
with patriarchal history, um, the author of Genesis is trying to help us narrow down the pool of who the Redeemer would come from by showing us in this uh, descending way from all the population of the earth down through these generations so that they can know who, at the, at the end of the, uh, of the book of Genesis, Judah's family has promised that from them the ruler will come. Why does this matter? Why does the Toledot or generations formula matter? Well, Genesis was given to a people who were delivered from slavery in Egypt. The Red Sea crossing took place around 1450 B.C. Moses recorded this book and taught it to the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. And it was important for them to know their divine destiny as the chosen people of God. They needed to know that the promised deliverer would come through the nation of Israel. And so God took the time to tell them who they are and whose they are. That they are His chosen people that He preserved and chose in spite of incredible odds. In addition to that, these ten section headings of the generations are easily memorable for an oral culture. The average person didn't have a Kindle or a library in their home. They depended on oral rhythms and storytelling. And so when Moses wrote, the majority of people just simply listened and remembered what he wrote and passed it on through these oral um, cultures. And these repetitive divisions of this long text gives them these handles or anchor points. These are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of ten times in the book of Genesis. Now let's look at verses 2 through 5. This is the uh, shortest treatment of the offspring of Japheth. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. If you're looking for baby names, this is a great chapter to turn to. Um, verse 3, the sons of Gomer are Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togermah, the sons of Javan are Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans, and in their nations. So from Japheth, we get seven sons. The shortest treatment, probably because their um, nations that they in, inhabited were furthest away from Canaan and furthest away from the people of Israel. I think we have a map here that we can show. Uh, and what you're going to see in the map uh, on the image here is that Japheth's descendants uh, inhabit most of what we would consider today as uh, the Mediterranean world, uh, Europe, all the way to what's, um, you remember Tarshish, all the way, uh, what is also known as Spain, uh, up into what is currently called Russia and uh, northern areas, and also um, heading east and west in the northern hemisphere. That would be described as Japheth, just like Noah prophesied that Japheth's um, inhabitants would spread. That his uh, last week we talked about in at the end of Noah's life, he prophesied and he told Japheth that his offspring would spread, and and so they did. Let me point out two particular names uh, from Japheth's line: um, Tarshish. Right? Why is Tarshish familiar? Do you remember uh, anybody who uh, was supposed to go and they went to Tarshish and said, anybody remember? 
Right, Jonah, that's right. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach, and instead he fled to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the world. A second name that I'll point out from Japheth's family is the name Magog. Does that sound familiar? Anybody remember the name Magog? Right? Uh, Magog, this name will show up in prophetic literature in several places. In Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel prophesies against Gog and Magog. Uh, and in, again, in Revelation chapter 20, in the final battle, listen to this, Satan's final stand and then his defeat happens this way. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You will see these names showing up later. And the point I want to make about that is that uh, it's important for us to understand um, not just how the Bible interprets the Bible, but uh, the authors of Scripture, John on the island Patmos, was led to write about these nations, Gog and Magog, and about their uh, relevant prophetic um, end times uh, relevance, how they will be a part of the end of the battle. These are not just nations that were... um, ancient history, but these have a future role to play. And so it's important for us to pay attention to the usage of these nations and how their spiritual formation develops. And so for this particular one, Magog, we see that it has incredible relevancy to end times prophecy. Verse 6 through 20 is going to treat the sons of Ham. So let's read that together. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush are Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, Kalsahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. By the way, the trick is just to read it confidently and quickly. <laughs> Whether I'm right or not, it doesn't matter. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lacha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. 
Ham's offspring gets a much larger treatment than Japheth. And you can see if we go back to the map here, uh, where Ham's um, where Ham's inheritance and his offspring dwell. Uh, there it is. Uh, Ham is located in green, and you can see by the map that um, most of Africa, uh, the southern Sinai Peninsula, and then uh, right up here into uh, where Israel would be in the red sort of call-out box there. That's the land of the Canaanites, uh, if you can see it there. Some notable things about Ham. Uh, by the way, the order of the sons of Noah is almost always Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Almost always. Even though Ham was the youngest, and Canaan, his grandson, would be cursed, Noah's grandson, Canaan, and Shem is the middle son, but, but in God's redemptive plan, it's often the second son who is the chosen line of God's people. Shem is mentioned here last because Shem's featured, because his line will lead directly to Abram in chapters 11 and 12. Ham, as you remember from last week's passage, uh, walked in and saw Noah, and he mocked him and humiliated his father. And so in return, Noah prophesied that the curse of Ham would fall on his son, Canaan. And I think that this is a really good time to dispel a terrible line of teaching that was made popular in the 16th and 17th centuries. Namely, that it says this teaching that the curse of Ham was black skin and that blackness was the curse from Noah. For centuries, this teaching propagated white slave traders uh, in order to justify slavery. But you'll notice that it's not Ham, it's Cush uh, is the name, it actually means black, and those with black skin settled in Africa, and you can see that on the map here, uh, that that line settled from Cush. But the nation of Canaan and all of the Canaanites did not have that same color designation. And so it is not a true teaching that the curse of Ham or the curse of Canaan is slavery or dark skin. And you should be quick to put that teaching down because it's not taught in Scripture anywhere. Canaan received the curse, and he received the curse as a result of the perversion and mocking that his father Ham engaged in with Noah in the tent. And as a matter of fact, when... Um, Moses is teaching the Israelites before they go into the land. He talks about all the terrible things that the Canaanites do, uh, and their perversions are notable uh, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he tells them, stop doing those things, and it's because of those things that these nations will be destroyed. The Canaanites practice child sacrifice, idolatry, violence, and all kinds of sexual immoralities in spite of the fact that God allowed them to endure. You remember when God promised Abram in Genesis 12 and 18, he said, your your inhabitants will live for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites are not yet full, meaning that there was a long period of time when God's grace would be extended to the Canaanites, most notably through a guy named Melchizedek. You remember Melchizedek in Hebrews, this um, this priest of God, this priest of righteousness that uh, that also Abraham came and gave a tenth to, and he shows up again in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek dwelled where the Jebusites dwell in the Jerusalem area, and so there is evidence that God gave the Canaanite people 
a witness of his own goodness and an opportunity to repent. But because they failed in Joshua's conquest, all those Canaanite nations, you can see them at the last half of that verse, starting in verse 15, they just start to get into the ites, right? Verse 16, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and so on. All these ites were just descendants of this larger Canaanite group that would be conquered by Joshua in the conquest. Uh, Let's move on to Shem, verses 21 through 31. Uh, Shem, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Let's just pause here for a second. We focus on Shem... Uh, so where we get the word Semitic or Semite, uh, you might have heard it in the negative with anti-Semitic or anti-Semite or something against those of Semitic heritage. Shem is where we get that. Shem would be the one from whom the descendants would be uh, Abraham, uh, and he would come from Eber, and that's going to be picked up in chapter 11. So chapter 10, verses 21 through 31, is uh, is an incomplete genealogy for Shem. It just gives basically 13 sons of Joktan. Let's go ahead and read it. Um, verse 22, the sons of Shem are Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram are Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Verse 24, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 11, verses 10 in two weeks. Uh, verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. His name meant Peleg. Uh, his, I'm sorry, his name meant divided. And so the events of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel, when everything is divided, that's when Peleg was born and got his name. Uh, Peleg was born at uh, the Tower of Babel period of time, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother, his name is Joktan. Verse 26 tells us that Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelith, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sefer, to the hill country of the east, and these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So there we have 70 names, and I'm sure I butchered half of them, but we'll we'll go ahead and look at the map again here and show you where the sons of Shem uh, dwell, Uh, largely on the Arabian Peninsula uh, and out into uh, what's called the, the Fertile Crescent or the Uh, Tigris and Euphrates, River Valley. I'm sure you remember that uh, from world history and some of those places. That's where the line of Shem descended. And in chapter 12, that's when um, Abram will be called from Ur of the Chaldees, which is in that area. Fascinating stuff. I know that you're on the edge of your seat uh, whenever we read these genealogical names. Um, How do we get through this? How how, How can we find encouragement from this? Let me close with a couple of different ways in which this matters. Number one, we can see that God is the God over all the nations. God is the God over all the nations. He is the God over all the world. He sovereignly rules over all the nations and their peoples. He ordains their dwelling places. 
their times, their boundaries, and their families all under his sovereign care. God is the God over all these lives and all of their places and over everywhere that they dwell. Turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 17. All the way over in the New Testament, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. After John, you find the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 17... Starting in verse 22, Paul has been preaching the gospel around uh, the Mediterranean and he is sent on ahead into Athens um, after he went to Berea. Uh, He went into Athens and while he's waiting for the rest of his team to join him in Athens, uh, verse 16 says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's going to walk around the city and he's going to learn everything there is to know about Athens and the people and the the group of people that are there. He finds that there are uh, people who gather weekly at the Areopagus and they do nothing with their time except for listen to new ideas. Stoic philosophers and Epicureans. And so they invite Paul to come and speak. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Just focus on those words for a second. God doesn't need anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I want you to understand here that a thousand years later, Paul is preaching the gospel and he he shows that way back in this division of nations and way back in this spreading of time, that God preordained and allotted the boundaries of their dwelling place and the allotted periods of time that they would live. God knew who they were and where they would live. And it says that um, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And I want to just take a second here, and I, I want you to think about the fact that you have life today. Have you ever thought about 
what it takes for you to have life, for you to be here in this room right now? Sure you have. But what are the statistics? What does it take for you to be here? I recently read an article that I'm going to quote here from a man named Dr. Benazir, who has done his best to crunch the exact numbers on what it takes, the, the odds that you could be alive and here in this room today. And he says that the probability of you existing at all comes out to 1 in 10 to the 2,685,000th degree. That's a 10 followed by 2,685,000 zeros. Let me just start small with, with how that comes about. He says, let's start here. What's the probability of your dad meeting your mom? Even though the world was smaller 20 years ago, he says your dad could have met almost 200 million of the world's women. Go dad, right? Um, Then he says, but over a period of 25 years limited to his area, he probably met around 10,000 women. So the odds that your mom was in this small group and met your dad is 1 in 20,000. But we know how tricky love can be. What is the probability that they stay together long enough to have kids? And this is where the math gets crazy, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's a 1 in 10 chance that they even talk to each other. It's also a 1 in 10 chance that they go on a second date. It's another 1 in 10 chance that they keep dating for a while, and a coin toss if they stay together long enough for offspring. So the odds of your parents meeting and resulting in kids is 1 in 2,000, which is staggering. So far, the combined odds of all those statistics together are 1 in 40 million that you would exist here. But it's not just your parents. Those same statistics apply to their parents individually, and their parents individually, and their parents individually, until we're all confused completely but we can see here the fact that God would say in, through Paul in Acts 17 that he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. I'm not even going to go into the reproductive issues that are involved in the numbers here. But it's absolutely incredible that you exist today. You are not an accident. You are here by divine choice and with purpose. Your life is meaningful. Your life is valuable. And Scripture itself says here that He Himself gives to you life and breath and everything. And and the statistical probability that you would even exist, it's ridiculous. The fact that you're alive is an absolute miracle. And I want you to see that that's because God is the God of all nations and the God of all people. And He made them, having determined these boundaries and the periods of their dwelling place. Why? Acts 17.27 says, so that they should seek God. It's one of your primary purposes in life. is so that you would seek God. So that you would pursue Him perhaps feeling their way toward him, yet actually he is not far from each one of us. So I want you to see that. We can talk about 70 nations from Genesis 10, and and, uh, we can look at maps about how everybody spread out, but the, the reality of that is that 
every person is God made and the, the boundaries of your dwelling and the days of your dwelling are by divine design. Number two, what do we do with these genealogical lists? I think, I think for me it shows that the gospel is grounded in reality and that anchors our faith in reality. Right? Sometimes skeptics, uh, people who are far from Christianity will accuse Christians saying that they shut off their minds and they exercise some kind of blind faith in an unseen God. But when we come to passages like this, we see evidence that our faith isn't blindly placed in an imaginary God. These are real names with real people. And these genealogies actually preach the gospel. And it was important for both Matthew and Luke, that they traced Jesus' existence back as far as they could to a real person in time. Genealogies preach the gospel because with each of these names comes a story of how God preserved and brought about the redemption of all mankind through these people. This geographical boundary shows the reality of the gospel. They were not only real people, but they lived in real places. In studying for this week's message, I I used maps and atlases and geographical and archaeological reports because over and over and over again, these things show that um, the gospel and the biblical record proves true so that our faith is grounded in reality. Far from being a myth, Far from bringing a legend, the easiest way around that would just be to make up a bunch of names that don't have any grounding to reality. But the gospel is grounded in reality. And that anchors our faith in reality. And then the last thing I'll say about these genealogies is the beautiful thing that God makes promises and he keeps his promises even against all the odds. He promised Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that uh, even though you have fallen and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to, out of your own offspring, one day will come one who will crush the head of the serpent and bring about deliverance from this curse of sin. And when Cain was born, um, the, the passage, Eve literally says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I have gotten a man, the Lord. All these hopes were in Cain that he might be the one. But when he killed Abel, it seemed like God's promise would go unfulfilled. But then through the birth of Seth, we find this godly line of people who are calling on the name of the Lord and proclaiming the name of the Lord. That line of godly people, though, dwindled as the culture around them became increasingly demonic and wicked and violent in Genesis 6 to the degree that there were only eight people worth saving out of a potential million or more. And even though the eight who were saved in the ark that God restarted creation with, sin and evil surfaced again through them. And so we thought that the promise might go unfulfilled. But God chose one man in that line. He chose Abram. And Abram was promised that he would be the father of a nation. God told him in Genesis 18 to go out and count the stars if you can number them. And Abram was promised that he would be the father of a nation and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. What's the problem, Abram? Well, he was 99 and his wife, Sarah, was 90 and they still had no children. And then God miraculously gave them a child in their old age, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah married and had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Jacob. 
And Jacob almost perished a few times. Judah has two sons die. Uh, Jacob receives the blessing, marries Leah and Rachel, and through them has 12 sons. Judah has two sons, withholds the third son for marriage, and his daughter-in-law tricks him, and then through that trick, he has a son that's included in Jesus' genealogy. So every single time that we would see the promised son, the Redeemer, come from this line of people, even when all the odds are against them, God still fulfills the promise that he made in Genesis 3. He makes promises and he keeps promises even against all the odds. When Samuel is told to go to Bethlehem and he's told to anoint one of Jesse's sons, what happens? Jesse gets all of his sons in front of him. He lines them up and Samuel goes son by son to find out who he is. What what, what happens, right? David's not even there. He said, I... Are these all your sons? The the king isn't even here. Jesse didn't think highly enough of David to include him in the lineup of sons. Talk about a, a father wound. So David is brought in and Samuel anoints him. And it's through the Davidic line that the promise of Jesus comes. Isn't that beautiful? God promises and then he keeps his promise even when the odds are stacked against the fulfillment of those odds. I find encouragement in that. As we go through times, like Dwayne talked about earlier, that when God seems distant and present, and not present with us while we're struggling and suffering, God makes these promises, and He is not slow in keeping His promises. So we can be encouraged by that. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Uh, We thank you that even in 70 genealogical names, we can find real meaning and value uh, from your word. We thank you that you make promises and that you keep them. We thank you that the gospel is found in the midst of these genealogical records. And we thank you that no one here is an accident. There's not a single person here uh, who has not been given life and breath in this time, in this place, without a purpose. And I pray that they would live for the purpose that they might seek you and that they might find you. Thank you that you have given each of us existence and opportunity. Help us not to let that go away. As we've read many passages from Revelation that describe the judgment coming and the end of days, and we're reminded that today is the day of salvation. And that even through a genealogical passage like Genesis 10, we can still have the hope of the gospel in demonstrating that we're not an accident, that you have created us and given us life and this opportunity to respond to you. It's my prayer that those who are listening, if they don't yet know you, that they might come to know you. And that you would use your word, demonstrate how you've given life and purpose you're allowing this word to be heard even now. We pray that you would use it for your glory and for your majesty. We ask it in Jesus' name.